The title of this message is, Who is your God? Is he God the Father, or is he the Godfather? (laughs) If there is one topic that this ministry, this body has been known for, it's the character of God. I get emails and texts, and I get strangers somehow find our email address, and like, I'm listening to these messages from like 2013, you know, and this is like, Crazy. There's people in Miami, wherever you guys are in Miami, if you're listening, thank you for writing us. There's a revival going on in Miami and and the Eastern Seaboard, but they're connected here. And the character of God, his nature, his heart as a father is something that this ministry and these these teachings have become kind of more famous for. And so I wanted to, in response to a few texts and emails, we got a lot of curious theologians in the body that will email me things like, hey, I heard this. Um, People will tag me on Instagram and like send me things and blogs and I just kind of shake my head. And um, so I've received a few of the same topic. And meanwhile, hearing other people say, what other messages do you have on the character of God? I felt compelled to bring you guys this message. It might be a two-part series, we'll see. But at large, I want to propose to you that we all have a great relationship and concept of Jesus. Jesus, awesome. Love him. Love that he holds the sheep. He's got a good facial hair. We're cool with Jesus. <laughs> the father, on the other hand, whew, I don't know. Like, there's some, like, kind of crazy things going on with the father. And, and so we have this kind of awkward relationship with the father, or at least it's easy to. Maybe you don't, but I had, for the majority of my life, like, Jesus, awesome. The father, holy cow, I don't know. And I thought I could have Christianity with just being okay with Jesus. But the problem is that Jesus came to reveal the Father and to reconcile us with the Father. And so if we're not okay with the Father, we've completely missed the personhood of Jesus and his mission for us. And so I kind of had this like awkward relationship with the Father because, you know, in my understanding of the gospel and the story of how we are, it's like, Okay, humanity blew it, you know, and then God was going to unleash all of his wrath on all the people for all their sins. And then Jesus comes and he's like, hey guys, no, no, I got this. And he's like, all right, you guys, you're you're cool now, right? You know, I'll see you later. And it's like, all right, so the father had this intent that was like going down the tracks and, and then Jesus steps in. And for me, it caused this interesting dynamic that I I never really kind of could get over it. Have you ever had an experience with someone where they had like major beef with you? Like they were like really frustrated, angry or whatever, and maybe you reconciled, but it's still kind of awkward, isn't it? For at least a little while. And there's a part of you that kind of like never really kind of gets over it. You're kind of troubled by it. And that was me, is that I was reconciled to the Father, but in deep down in my heart and my belief, I felt that the father was on his way to kill me until Jesus stepped in. And I'm saying that in those blunt terms, and I know that's not the truth, but that's how it felt. Are you guys with me? And so I believe every Christian, and even non-Christians, they're okay with this man named Jesus, but the personhood of the father is a mystery that we're not sure. And again, that is a big problem because Jesus is in the mission of reconciling sons and daughters to the Father. And that's the problem I see is that the body of Christ has this unhealthy fear 
of the Father. The body of Christ loves Jesus but has an unhealthy fear of the Father. Why do I say unhealthy? Because there's actually good fear. Like I'm married to my wife. Like I'm not afraid of her punishment. Well, maybe I guess I am. (laughs) But I revere her. I respect her. I honor her. I'm motivated. I preserve our relationship by who she is. This reverence and awe of her in our relationship together. But there's an unhealthy fear, an unhealthy fear that 1 John 4.18 tells us. It says that there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. And so here we're told to fear God, right? But then we're like, well, perfect love casts out fear. How do we understand that? And so who is this God that we believe in? Because the God I believed in was more of the Godfather, not Father God. God the Father who was kind, that my image of the Father was really rigid, was cold, was capricious, was like ready to throw lightning bolts at you, that was, that was vengeful, temperamental, and above all, disconnected. That God had to send Jesus because the Father is so terrible at relationships. And instead of having this amazing Father God, I had the Godfather. Instead of Abba Father, which means Daddy God. And we see the scriptures talk about Daddy as our Father. It changes everything, especially since I became a father. And one of my favorite quotes of all time to this topic is A.W. Tozer. He says that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Who you believe God to be, his character, his nature, how he responds, how he thinks of you is the most important thing about you and in your relationship with him. So my goal tonight for you is to help us rewrite some of the narrative in which we believe about our own understanding of the Father as it relates to failure, as it relates to separation and shame. And I also have a message on punishment that I don't think I'm quite yet ready to share. You guys would need to give me some grace into that. It's, it's wild. <laughs> so don't bring pitchforks next time. I don't know if I'm going to preach it. But it's a topic that I'm, I'm drawn into, I'm in deep study with. So, but tonight, I'm going to share about separation, failure, and shame. And really, the whole entire problem that we have with the Father originates in how we believe what happened in the Garden of Eden and what we believe about the salvation story at large. And if you look at the entire salvation narrative, even if you have someone who's going to talk to someone off the street about salvation, they usually come up with the exact same analogy. Have you seen like the Bible tracks where maybe like they show you like how to understand Jesus, God, and sin? What do they show? They show cliffs, right? I pulled a couple of graphics. Hopefully we have them here. But maybe you, realize, you recognize this one. Right, you have man on the one side. You have God on the other side. You have a huge chasm. Go to the next one. Right, and th- these are hilarious to look for too. They get, they're really intense. I, I kept this G-rated. But, you know, God over there and terrible graphics and sin, death, hell. God's work's falling short, this imagery, right? And show the next one. And this one again, you know, like 
how big are those flames in this like cliff? You know, like this emphasis of like God is, is way over there. And what's common about all of these, if you look, is that God is on this opposite side. And man's on this opposite side. And God's like, well, I guess there's a chasm here. Looks really steep and big. And every single one, God is separated. We don't question that. God is on the opposing side with an insurmountable chasm. And the idea is that man fell and God separated. See, the entire gospel message is about man trying to get back to God. But as I'll show you tonight, that the entire gospel message is God trying to get to man. It's not us trying to clamor away and like figure out how do I get across this chasm? Oh my gosh, does someone have a rope? It is the king of all creation conspiring to intervene in your life to introduce you to his heart. That is the gospel. But our idea of salvation is that we sinned and man, we sinned as man and God separated. Now, you might say, well, hold on a second. I don't necessarily believe that because we all know Romans 3.23, that all have fallen short of the glory of God, right? We know this, like we can recite the verses that man fell. But we have these opposite and other related theologies that many of us hold, maybe not a ton in this room, but a lot of people in Christendom hold. And they say things about God and his his proximity and what he can tolerate and what he can look at in way of sin. Some of these phrases say, like, in such a way that they say, an all-good God cannot coexist with evil. That God is so holy, he cannot look upon sin. That God cannot be in the presence of evil. Have you guys heard these sayings before? That that God's holiness, the foundation of his holiness, is defined by his absence and his departure and his separation from sin. His holiness is entirely defined by how he's separate from sin. And the problem is that we sinned. And so our sin nature naturally causes his nature to separate from us. And because we sin, that God cannot coexist with sin, he separated. So while it's still our fault that we sinned, his holiness demanded that he removed himself. And we even reinforce this belief by the cross. You're familiar with Jesus' last words on the cross? Remember? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that is the textbook, that is the the substance, the justification that an all-holy, righteous God cannot look upon sin. And so therefore the Father turned his face from his Son because Jesus became sin. And when Jesus became sin on our behalf, the Father had to separate and look away. And theologians write about this. I, I pulled one excerpt from this. It says, at 3 o'clock on that dark day, Friday afternoon, the Father turned his face away from the ancient eternal fellowship between father and the son was broken. Jesus did not merely feel forsaken, he was forsaken. And not only by his disciples, but by God himself. This is the text that most clearly proves that God separates from sin. He turns his face. I'm going to come back to this passage at the end and ruin it for all you guys. 
But we have this idea that sin is God-repellent, that God's proximity is directly related to our ability to do right and wrong. And when we do wrong, we feel God is distant. Now, we never say, I sinned and I've become numb, that I have become callous, that I have become distant. We always say, well, God feels really distant. And we always put it on, on his side. And we feel that distance, but the distance is never on God's side of the equation. It's always on our side, and so that it's a dangerous lie to believe. And it's wrong according to the scriptures and the story, and it's wrong in the natural. Let me show you. If we reread the, the account of original sin in Genesis 2, we find that God wasn't the one who separated. And I'm going to pick up the story after Adam and Eve both ate of the fruit. And this is Genesis 2, 8. And 10, this is when their eyes were open. It says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called the man and said, Where are you? And Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. So who separated? His man. God went looking. And how many know that if, if God can't find you, you're really lost? <laughs> That's how separated they were. And so the story is not that Adam and Eve sin and God says, you're dead meat. You better watch your back, you know. The story is Adam and Eve sinned and then God went looking. This is also true in the natural. I have two kids, ages seven and four. And without any teaching, without any example, without any, like, other reason for knowing, when my kids disobey, they separate. When they disobey, they experience the letdown and the shame, and they run, and they go to the room, they slam the door, and they lock the door, and they put their head in the pillow. How do they learn this? It's not like we'd like take them through any like child disobedience classes for what to do. It's like it's this innate, natural response. And similarly, the natural response from a father is to go to your kids when they disobey, when they fall, not to withdraw from them. It would seem that the most absurd thing ever would be to consider the father withdrawing from the kids when the kids fall. It would be horrifically ridiculous for my kids to disobey and then me as a father say, well, I just can't handle this. I'm too perfect and I'm going to go over here and you kids, like, you disobedient kids, you stay over there and, and now there's a chasm between us. I don't know what we're going to do. It would be the most insane thing ever for me as a father for the response to their failure to separate. To suggest that God separates is not only silly and natural, it's the most offensive thing you could suggest, not only for a natural father, but for our heavenly father. Running and hiding is what children do, not what God does. If when your kids fail and you're the parent and you go hide, you're a bad parent. <laughs> no good parent does this. But we have been perfectly comfortable with the theology that says our heavenly father does this. No, the good father when the children fall, says, hey, come here. I want to talk. I want to help you clean up. 
where are you? Come here, can you open the door? My, my daughter, she just like goes in like this deep spiral. And, and I, there's not a bone in my body that says, I can't talk to you, I don't want to talk to you. You see, a child's natural instinct is always to retreat. But a father's natural instinct is to always draw near. We don't feel that way, but that's what happens. And we need to be believers, not feelers. We can't allow our failure to allow us to tell us what didn't happen because he's pursuing us. And so the natural from the child is to run and to lock the door and to yell, I want to be left alone. And, and so why, why do they do this? I'm like watching my kids like, where did you learn this? And then I think like, where did I learn this? It's very similar to how my relationship with God is. When I would struggle or fail, naturally I retreat. Naturally I get cool on the relationship. If you're in a dating relationship or even any relationship and someone kind of like miffs you, you're like, oh, I'm just going to give you a little bit of a temperature change there. You know? <laughs> it's so natural. Why do children do this? Why do we do this in our faith? I believe they do it because they fear rejection. And it's actually easier for them to reject themselves for you than to face your rejection. In other words, they say, I'm going to reject myself before you can reject me. And isn't that what we all wrestle with? Is that even though we claim that all have fallen short of the glory of God, our hearts secretly fear that God is going to reject us. We fear his response, whether it's punishment whether it's wrath or disconnection, or if this was me, if I did something wrong, I was expecting something wrong to happen to me. When I got disappointed with, an, with something maybe I was pursuing, I thought, well, it's because I had this sin in my life. And that's how I would connect the Father's response to me. And so, therefore, when we fall, we pull back. And because I believe it's because that we fear God's rejection, that we will reject ourselves before he can, that we would rather reject ourselves than face someone else's rejection. We'd rather get it over with on our terms. And Jesus addresses this issue about separation from, from God in the story of the prodigal son. And I want to share a little bit about it with you to give us some insight, not only on separation, but on God's natural heart as a father towards us. So this is Luke chapter 15, and Jesus is with the Pharisees, and Jesus is like hanging out with sinners and tax collectors. And the Pharisees are like totally indignant that Jesus would even be associating with somebody that has got sin in their life. And so they begin to murmur, and they're like, he even eats with them. How horrible is that? And Jesus in a rebuke, doesn't just issue one parable, doesn't just issue two parables. He gives them the triple barrel parable, parable back to them. And he gives the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the lost sheep, and the parable of the lost son, the son that ran away. Notice it's not the God who ran away. All the parables are about something that's lost and then someone pursues to go find it. Consistent according to all the parables. And so again, we see that the separation is entirely on the result of the prodigal son, not the father in this parable. But you know the story. You know the, the second son, he goes to his father and he says, I want my inheritance right now. 
And what that means in there is basically, I want you dead, is what the, fa- what the son is saying to the father. The inheritance is only what you get after the father's passed away. But here you have a living son saying to a living father, I wish you were dead. I want all that is owed to me. And so we know that. So he gets a third, because he's the second son, he gets a third of the, the entire estate from the father. And what does he do? He goes out and it says that he had loose living, which I love it when the Bible's like super political correct in that way. The son took one-third of the father's entire wealth and spent it on prostitutes. That's what that means. And so let me pick up the story for you. This is after the son is out of money. And this is Luke chapter 15, verses 17. says, but when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I'm dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up. But while he was still a long way off, His father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for the son of mine who was dead has come to life again. He was lost and now he's been found and they began to celebrate. This is the story that Jesus gives in response that he's associating with people who do not yet believe in him, who still have sin. The father and the son were separated, but not by the will of the father, but by the will of the prodigal son. And what do we find the son, what do we find the father doing after the son departed? He's searching. That while he's still a long way off, that means the father was out looking probably from weeks or months. Weeks or months, the father is waiting there, watching the horizon, waiting for his son. And the pattern is the same. The children separate, but the father goes looking. And when the father sees him, what does he do? He runs. Now we think, oh, he ran. Okay, next verse. No, no, no. You don't understand. Jewish men don't run. (laughs) They're in huge robes. They're super distinguished. They are the patriarchs. They don't run. It's hot. They're in the desert. You know, you are head to toe in a run. And so in in, in Jewish culture, you don't do this. But the father, what it means for him to run would be to lift up his robe as if lifting up a dress. And he is in sandals in dirt and begins to run. The shame, the embarrassment, the humiliation that my son who said, I wish you were dead, asked for a third of my wealth, spent it on prostitutes, is on the horizon. And he decides to run for it. A wealthy father in the heat wearing sandals for a son who completely betrayed him in prostitutes. How mortifying and shameful. But it was the father's joy 
to abandon all embarrassment and all shame and run to his son. I find this parallel in Hebrews 12 when it talks about Jesus as he looked upon the cross. It's one of these like strange passages in the Bible. It says that Jesus, who's the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And we look at that like the joy before him for the cross. That must be a typo. (laughs) There's no way. Yes way. Because I believe the Lord hung there naked on a cross, died of asphyxiation, humiliating, shameful. There's no way that you and I would ever look at that and say, that sounds fun or is joyful. Like you don't describe that in terms of joy. But what Jesus sees on the other side of the cross, he says, this is the Father abandoning all shame, abandoning all humiliation, all embarrassment. I'm running to my kids. Folks, the the gospel is not how do we get to God. The gospel is how God gets to us. That he looks at the cross and is like, that is what I have to go through. If that's the wall I have to break down, I'm going to go through it. And so seeing the joy set before him that on the other side of that pain, that suffering, that shame, that humiliation is redemption for my kids. I'm going to do it. And you and I, would know it too. My kids, we live in the mountains. I live in Lake Tahoe and we have bears up there. And my kids, like they get, they're, a bear like broke into my truck, ravaged all the way around, then jumped on top of my truck, pushed in the cab. It was like $10,000 in damage from a bear. I left a Chick-fil-A chicken nugget in the truck. <laughs> Most expensive chicken nugget on the planet. They're concerned about bears. And their, their window, you know, it's outside. And like, what happens if a bear? And I'm like, kids, if a bear comes here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to grab him by his And I'll make up stories about what I'll do to this bear. You know, and there's this visceral reaction of like, oh, if something comes after you, oh, you just wait. Oh, please, you know, let me show you what I'm going to do. And it's amazing how there's not a single thing on earth that would give me a second of pause to do for my kids. The joy set before Jesus when he thought about you to reconcile you. But back to the story. What is the prodigal son's response? When the son gets there, he does one important thing. He tries to invalidate his identity as a son. It's not, I'll pay you back. He says, I am not worthy to be called your son. In other words, I reject me before you reject me. I'm going to make it easy on you. And offers to pay off his shame with works. There was a direct relationship to how much church I attended and how many volunteers I had to the sin I had just encountered. That we do this swing of when we fall, we think I need to you know, get really busy and make up for it. I'm going to like, you know, do these different things. It's the same exact thing as the son here. He says, I'm not worthy to be called your son and I'm going to work it off. Call me a servant. And my favorite part of this entire story is the father never even acknowledges what the son says. The father's not like, oh, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, you do kind of blow it. 
Um, I guess we have some sheep that could, like, no, he didn't do that. He just, like, flat out ignored everything the son came with and, like, interrupted him. Like, the son didn't even get a chance to finish his sentence before the ring was on, the robe was on, and there was a dead cow over there. Like, he didn't even get to finish what he was saying. The father so interrupted him. And the son's shame asked for rejection and the father denied it. And really what we discover in this entire journey is not understand the nature of separation, but it's actually a discovery about what happens to us as we encounter shame. Separation is something that occurs. But the story in here is actually what is happening in us and to us because of shame. Shame creates an alternative reality. When we encounter shame, we get cuckoo in the head. And we start inventing different things. And we begin to come up with different explanations. And we develop an alternative reality for what is actually occurring. And so in our shame, we feel God separates because shame messes with our mind. And we get confused about things. It's just not the case. We cannot trust what we say and believe and what we think is going on when we experience shame. We have been poisoned by shame in our thinking. And this is the exact reason why good fathers don't separate from their kids when they fail. A good father never separates from their child when they fail. Why? Is because shame enters in. A good parent will never increase the shame of a child. In fact, a good parent helps you heal from the shame. And that is the beautiful response of the prodigal son, is that the father's, the father's response is directly attempting to extinguish and resolve the pain. And we find this exact thing in the Garden of Eden too. Let me show you. In the story of the Garden of Eden, do you remember what was unique about their nakedness? They were nakedness, they were naked and they felt no shame. The absence of shame is one of the attributes of divine fellowship with God in the garden. Well, what happened after they sinned? Their eyes opened up and they felt shame. They realized they were naked. Now, what did they do to cover their shame? They took fig leaves and sewed garments for themselves. Now here is one passage all of us forget in the Garden of Eden. They sin, they feel shame, they're naked, they sow the fig leaves. And this is after God tells them the results, the consequences that their shame, their sin is brought on them. So this is before they're escorted out of the garden, but this is after they've sinned, okay, you with me? Look at this. Genesis 3.21, he says, And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Remember, Adam and Eve were already wearing fig leaves. After they fell and after they heard the consequence of what their decisions brought them upon themselves, God the Father cared for their shame. It wasn't like, get out of here! It's like, oh man, this is what happens now. 
and let me tend to the shame. Let me be a good father right now and replace your fig garments with skin garments to keep you warm. He didn't need to do that. But it shows you the heart of compassion that God has for his kids, that he cares for their shame and cares for their, for their failure enough to say, I love you and I care about how you're feeling now. Because the skin didn't do anything about their sin. It cared for their shame. And kids need their parents the most immediately after they fail. The shame that follows your failure tries to invalidate your worth and your identity. When my daughter Scarlett fails, she like without fault says, I'm a bad girl, you know, and like she goes in like this tailspin. One time we're on the ski slopes and she, she disobeyed and didn't hear it, and we're on like the longest chairlift in the entire like thing. She goes hysterical and then barks the entire way up the mountain that she wants to be part of a different family. I mean, just hysterical. I mean, people are skiing like, what? And, you know, like ski patrols, like racing up the mountain, up, you know, trying to get to us. Hysterical. And her inclination is, I am a bad person. And I don't even deserve to be in this family. Again, things like, when did you learn this? Why would you ever think that way? And so parents, mothers and fathers, or even spiritual mothers and fathers, are the key ingredients to extinguishing shame. If you don't have that relationship in your life, you are subject to the toils of shame upon you. They're the ones that can help you because shame is almost always an attack on your identity. Shame is almost always an attack on your identity. And it's important that we actually understand the difference between sorrow and shame. Adam and Eve didn't feel sorrow. They felt shame. We're like, well, what's the difference? Sorrow is, I did something bad. Shame is, I am something bad. Adam and Eve didn't just feel sorrowful, they felt rejected. The prodigal son didn't just feel sad that he wasted all of his father's wealth, he felt that he is bad. And so when shame infiltrates your identity, you actually believe that rejection is justified. Shame allows us to feel that it's okay for someone to reject us because we've actually agreed with a lie about our identity. And that's how we can have head knowledge that man fell short of the glory of God, but that God actually is separating because our shame says that not only did God kind of want to, his separation from me is actually justified. And therefore, I reject myself before he can reject me. And so separation, in reality, is an entire result of how man separates from God. Not God separating from man, but when we have the shame, we mix the two and we believe that God separates us. Again, the gospel is not that we try to get to God. The gospel is God trying to get to us. And so the narrative is not that the holiness of God demands that he separate from us. Because we're sinful, it's the exact opposite, is that God pursues us. He pushes down the walls and comes after you for the exact reason that he's relentless about you. But we have a problem, don't we? What do we do about, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The single theological notch that says God's holiness demands that he separates. Any of you have ever, like, that's the way that you've heard that story, right? That's how we understand it. 
And that, that one line of Jesus saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is the single and the greatest proof of this idea that God separates from us. And so how, if we believe that man separates and God is pursuing, how do you reconcile Jesus on the cross, who his own son, like united with him in the Trinity, is separating from him? How does that even happen? Well, what we don't know in reading this is that in Jewish culture of the day, if you quote one, the first line of the psalm, you quote the entire psalm. Quoting the first line of any psalm is shorthand for declaring the entire psalm. And the people and the Jews of the day had memorized all the psalms. So it's a shorthand to invoke the entire thing. Now, there are several psalms that talk about messianic prophecies about what's going to happen. There's Psalm 89, 102, Psalm 32, Psalm 45, 110. There's a bunch of them. But there is one psalm that talks in perfect detail of the crucifixion. There's one psalm that says that they mocked me. There's one psalm that says that they abandoned me. There's one psalm that says they pierced my hands and my feet. There's one psalm that says my bones were not broken. There's one psalm that says that blood and water flowed on my body. There's one psalm that says they cast lots for my garments. There's one psalm that says at the end of the earth, all people will know of my death. You guys are getting the point, right? One psalm that had perfect and exact accuracy not that the Messiah would come, but how he would die. It is Psalm 22. The greatest messianic psalm depicting what happens to the Messiah on the cross. And what is the first line of Psalm 22? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is not saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's not his experience. He has given the first line to quote the entire psalm so that the Jews, as they hear it, and they look at his pierced hands, and they look at his blood and water flowing out, as they look at people casting lots, like they should be connecting dots. Jesus spent his last breath to humanity telling the world, I was him. I was him. It's not a story of the father rejecting the son. It's the story of Jesus finally revealing to the world, I was he. And you perfectly fulfilled everything. That's the story. So God never separated from Jesus. He is not separating from us when we sin. We estranged ourselves with sin, and God is in hot pursuit. And we need to be reconciled to him. And the good news is is he's searching. He's on the hunt. If he doesn't find you today, he's going to find you tomorrow. If he doesn't find you tomorrow, he's going to keep looking because that's what a good father does. He is the pursuer of you. He is the delighter of you. And if I could change the entire track, the, the, the picture of the cliffs, it would be like man running and God chasing after him with open arms, saying, I have the answer. I have the way. It's not God looking at like, oh, this insurmountable chasm with fires and sharks and things down below. He's calling us and every single person on earth with arms open wide. And you know that Eugene Peterson, he passed away recently, this past month. You guys know him? He wrote the Message Bible. Well, allegedly, Leif, his son, at his funeral said, my father fooled everyone for his 29 years of ministry. 
So he like wrote the Bible first off, but in all of his pastoral ministry, he fooled everyone. He only had one message. And apparently Eugene Peterson clued in Leif, his son, many years ago and said, I only have one message that I give over and over and over again. And this was the secret that Leif had been brought into that he had heard whispered in his ear as a son, as a young boy, and watched as his father did ministry for the entire lifetime. And he said that his one message was this, that every sermon, every book, everything was about. It said that God loves you, God is on your side, he's coming after you, and he is relentless. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And that's the narrative. I love you guys.